Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Wednesday, January 26, 2022, and today will be better than yesterday. Producing from his home studio in the foothills of Connecticut is Taylor Schwenk. I'm Buster Only, working from New York. Last night, David Ortiz was in the Dominican Republic, and he got a call from Jack O'Connell of the Baseball Writers Association of America. Hello, I'm trying to reach David Ortiz, please. This is David Ortiz. Hello, David. This is uh, Jack O'Connell with the Baseball Writers Association of America. I'm calling you from Cooperstown, New York, to let you know that the Baseball Writers have elected you to the National Baseball Hall. Yes! Yeah, David Ortiz was the only player voted the Hall of Fame this year. He got 77.9% of the vote at age 46. He'll also be the youngest of the 75 living members of the Hall. Bonds, Barry Bonds, baseball's all-time home run leader, 354-game winner Roger Clemens, 600 homer club member Sammy Sosa, and longtime ace pitcher Kurt Schilling were in their 10th and final year of eligibility in the baseball writers' balloting, and they did not get close to election Today, we'll be talking with Paul Hambikides about all of that, what it all means. And that's before a great conversation about baseball's work stoppage with the guy who I think we could regard as baseball's version of Tom Brady. And that would be longtime pitcher Rich Hill, who will talk about the shortened spring training and how that might affect pitchers and hitters. And he has a strong take on the electronic strike zone. An update on the labor talks. Okay, they're talking. Uh, Major League Baseball yesterday in talks with the Player Association indicated for the first time that it is open to a pre-arbitration bonus pool during during the labor meeting. But the two sides remain far apart on how much should be distributed. According to sources familiar with the talks, Major League Baseball is offering $10 million in the pool while the players want $105 million. This, according to sources speaking with our Jeff Passan and Jesse Rogers, That money would be distributed to the top 30 pre-arbitration players based on wins above replacement and awards such as MVP and Cy Young Awards. There have been other baby steps, but hey, the lead negotiators are talking. Woohoo! What a shock. Some other notes. Robot umpires at home plate will be used in AAA for 2022. One step away from Major League Baseball, the electronic strike zone continues to progress in how Major League Baseball is using it. I'll be asking Rich Hill whether or not he thinks it's a good thing for baseball or not. Last week, Major League Baseball informed the Tampa Bay Rays that they will not support the Rays split season plan with the Montreal Expos, with the city of Montreal, I should say. You know, all along, I didn't think there was any chance that this was going to happen. Taylor, what do you got? Buster, pair things to remote. Swagoon Perk with Kendrick Perkins and Marcus Spears is available every Tuesday wherever you're listening to your podcast. You can watch the show on YouTube. This week, they're talking about the 76ers wasting a great season from Joel Embiid by not trading Ben Simmons, an all-timer between the Bills and Chiefs, and they show some love for Kansas State's Aoka Lee for putting up 61 on Oklahoma. I think that's a record in uh, women's hoops, so uh, shout out to her and check those highlights out if you haven't seen them. Also, 
30 for 30 has a new entry into its award-winning film series. The Tuck Rule examines one of the most controversial plays in sports history. For the first time, Charles Woodson and Tom Brady discuss the call that changed it all. Watch it live February 6th at 8 p.m. Eastern on ESPN or watch it the next day on ESPN+. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Jumping into the numbers. This is Hembo Knows on Baseball Tonight. And Hembo is Paul Ambikides. I'm not going to go through all of his uh, credentials because you know them already. Hembo, how you doing? I'm doing great, Buster. That is a long list of credentials, so I appreciate you not taking time. <laughs> um, you know, I'm just moving on because actually I don't have a list of credentials. You don't have a list of credentials, I should say. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So we're going to get, I wanted John uh, to talk about the Hall of Fame election. You and I have strong opinions about this, but real quick on the negotiations. Um, I, it, look, it, it feels like that there are baby steps being taken and maybe they're longer steps. But I think if I were on both sides, if I were an owner, if I were a player, small market owner in particular, and we've heard about these possible concessions that move the two sides together, my first question would be, why weren't those concessions talked about in June? <laughs> the idea that you're, uh, you know, you're just making these small, uh, you know, baby steps now as opposed to talking through potential issues last year. Uh, you know, it, because if you had done that, if you had actually had collaborative, cooperative discussions, uh, it, you know, six months ago, then you would have avoided all the damage that's being done. You got teams that are not selling tickets or not generating revenue. And you and I both know that when this ends, uh, you know, if it's the end of February, if it's the middle of March, the middle class players are going to get destroyed in free agency. What do you think? Uh, there's no... Yeah, there's, there's no question about that for sure. Um, what, what struck me in 2020 during uh, during the pandemic and obviously all of the the ugly back and forth that went into the 60 game season that we wound up getting, I was just stunned by the lack of foresight that either party yes. had. Like the only thing that either side seemed to care about is winning that moment. And obviously, we knew this was coming for years. We talked for years about the deteriorating relationship between the owners and the players. And they knew they knew their relationship was bad. And we knew this was the expiration of this CBA. So it is unfathomable to me that we are so early in this process now when, like you said, this should have been going on for during all of last season. And the second point that I'll make, you're absolutely right in saying that 
Bull market owners are losing an opportunity here, of course, to sell tickets and for more teams. But like that's a that's a league wide issue, Buster. How many millions of dollars is being punted this offseason because the the league is electing not to market any of its players? It's like when you look at how, like how much time will yes. have elapsed between the time say the, the you know the the, the the owners lock the players out and thus you know all the stuff from MLB.com disappeared to the time in which this comes back. We're talking about millions, tens of millions of dollars lost at a time in which the NFL is just kicking ass like the, the other leagues are just thriving and baseball is non-existent there is perhaps we'll never know the monetary value of this dead period but even if things come back and we play 162 games next year starting in april this period of time in which baseball has essentially decided we aren't marketing itself has been extremely detrimental and again let's repeat the context of what's going on now uh of the broader context over the last seven years is is that the two sides basically haven't consistently talk for years and years and years. They, they disagreed. There would be labor stoppages, something, you know, players struck their lockout, stuff like that, but they talked. What's been just shocking to me is the lack of engagement, you know, going into the 2016 uh, deal, there was a lack of engagement. We know the owners killed the players in those negotiations. There again has been a general lack of engagement on some of these issues which is why it's now someone's being, you know, it's being brought up. Well, we'll give this concession, get this concession. And, and in the end, uh, on the player side, it's going to be the middle class that's, that's going to pay for it. It costs nothing to talk, Hembo. That's the part. It costs nothing for them to meet and talk because you're not agreeing to anything. But you did have the opportunity last summer to say, hey, if we gave in on this issue, what would that be worth to us? Those conversations didn't take place, and that doesn't make any sense to me. All right, let's talk about the Hall of Fame. Uh, David Ortiz, before we wade into all the stuff that we're going to wade into, <laughs> uh, a worthy first-year inductee for sure. In my mind, 541 home runs, seven times in the top 10 in the MVP voting, a great postseason hitter. Uh, I agree with you, Buster. But, uh, David Ortiz is one of four players in history with 500 home runs and 600 doubles, the others. Albert Pujols, Barry Bonds, and Hank Aaron. Buster, he had 85 or more extra base hits in a season five times. Only Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig ever had more such seasons. And that doesn't begin to even scratch the surface, really, of his Hall of Fame candidacy, because I think you could make a cogent argument. He's the most clutch hitter in the history of the sport. 13 career walk-off home runs that's tied for the most all-time. He owns the highest career batting average and OPS in the history of the World Series. In my judgment, David Ortiz based upon his regular season merits, would be a Hall of Famer if he never played a single game in October. And he is among the very greatest to ever play in the postseason. So for me, I'm willing to cast aside, you know, the, you know, the incident in 2003 with, you know, the leaked PED test and his tangential connection to that. But when we watched David Ortiz play, he was an obvious Hall of Famer and the numbers back that up. All right. So what do you think this means? The fact that David Ortiz, despite that 2009 New York Times report, he gets into the Hall of Fame uh, his first year on the ballot. I, I do wonder if that's going to soften the perspective among other players, you know, linked to PEDs. And in particular, I was thinking this morning, it could turn out to be that David Ortiz's uh, candidacy might help his longtime teammates, uh, Manny Ramirez, as well as his good friend, Alex Rodriguez. I think that it might help A-Rod. I'm not as convinced it's going to help Manny. Manny at 29%. Obviously, you always have the two positive tests to hide behind if you're a writer that does not want to vote for Manny Ramirez. To me, that's fair, and that's not going away. With A-Rod, 34% the first time on the ballot is not anywhere close to being a disqualifying number. There are 42 players that were eventually elected to the Hall of Fame. 
that received less support their first time on the ballot. But what we know, of course, is that his case is unique. It's 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 different than any of those other players because of his you know uh, transgressions and, and connections to performance enhancing drugs. My sense, Buster, is that he's never going to get in uh, through the writers, and the reason for it is because. So many of the new writers have favored uh, steroid users or at least haven't um, haven't acted the same way that some of the older writers have. And for him to only be at 34 percent in his first year, to me, a, a good indication of, of A-Rod eventually getting in would have been a number much closer at 50 percent. I think what we are likely to wind up doing now, Buster, and maybe I'm wrong and I hope I'm wrong is we go through this 10 year slog where every year we're checking A-Rod's percentages climbing slowly and slowly and slowly. And it's just going to really come down to a matter of how many older voters fall off and how many newer voters come on. But aside from that, I think this is the same old story for the next 10 years. Well, you know what, as you were talking, realizing, you know, what else might be working for Alex Rodriguez and Manny Ramirez, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. Okay. Mm. I think they're getting in. I think one of these special committees is going to, he's going to acknowledge the reality uh, about, you know, PD users in the hall of fame. We talked on get up this morning about how, um, look, I, I think the Hall of Fame is a great museum, but not having Bonds and Clemens in the Hall of Fame, it, it completely undercredit, uh, undercuts the credibility of the plaque room. Uh, and I think that the, you know, the, the Hall of Famers over time, and you saw the late Bob Gibson acknowledge in his comments, well, you know what, I can't say that I wouldn't use steroids if I had the opportunity. <laughs> I think Johnny Bench has been more circumspect. Uh, I think that eventually Bonds and Clemens get in, gets, get in. And at that point, if you're a voter, if you don't see the writing on the wall and just acknowledge like, boy, we ought to just put in the best players. Uh, I, I would be shocked. I, I, I do wonder if Bonds and Clemens eventually getting in through a special committee might help Alex. It would definitely help Alex. If Bonds and Clemens get in by a committee it essentially allows the baseball writers to throw out all the rules with which they've been using for the last 10 or 15 years. The only right. bit of pushback that I'll give you on the Bonds and, Clem- on Bonds and Clemens not getting in, um, you know, in, in, you know, through the writers and what that might mean. I'm not convinced that this isn't sort of in its own kind of weird way, Buster, a charming thing about the Baseball Hall of Fame. Like, for my money, one of the most interesting things about it is that Pete Rose is not in it and that Sulis Joe Jackson is not in it. Now, baseball is the only sport that has a Hall of Fame that we care about at all. And I'm not certain that Bonds and Clemens getting in, although deserving, would drive any more interest, would add any more credibility. In my judgment, it's one of these sort of like unique baseball-y things that maybe it's just because I'm, I live in the talk, uh, sports talk radio world. But I've always thought that the, the, the Pete Rose debate, the Shoeless Joe debates, and now someday the Clemens, Bonds and Clemens debate actually add more relevance to the museum and the Hall of Fame than, than otherwise. I, I think the fact that Bonds and Clemens are not in is just silly. Uh, and, you know, I can't. Out of fairness to players, I can't name names among guys, but I could I could just tick down a list. I'm like, this guy used, this guy used, this guy used, <laughs> uh, who are, cu- are currently Hall of Fame, which w- is why it's silly. And I also think it's silly. I talked about this on Get Up Today. The more I thought about it, you know, I've been writing about this for years and thought a bit more about it overnight. Then you have a group of journalists who have effectively allowed themselves to become deputized as the retro mora- uh, morality police for the Hall of Fame, uh, I, it's got to be an uncomfortable place, I would hope, for some of them, you know, and to begin to ask themselves, you know what, I really shouldn't be in this business of being the one to do, who uh, does the character judgment. It's clear, Major League Baseball punted this issue to the Hall of Fame, the Hall of Fame punted it to the writers, and you've got about a third of the writers who allowed this to happen. 
Yeah, that's right. And, and they profited off of it when it was happening. And for in my judgment, Buster, it is hypocritical now for those writers to live in this sort of new world that they've created. I mean, for my money, at least, anything that happened before 2003 should be sort of just viewed as a misdemeanor. That's when Major League Baseball, that's when, they, when the joint drug agreement went into place. Before that, you and I both know that was the Wild West. And thus, I do agree with you. The retroactive morality piece of this thing that a large chunk of the, uh, the voting block still uh, uses, I think is uh, dishonest, disingenuous, and it, and it has, over the course of time, eroded the Hall of Fame uh, in some sense. All right. I think Kurt Schilling is a Hall of Famer. I think someday he'll get in. Uh, real quick, we got about 30 seconds. Do you agree mm-hmm. with me? Scott Rowland, uh, Andre Jones, big jumps. Huge. Uh, Scott Rowland, I think, is absolutely getting in. There have only been eight third basemen ever voted in by the writers. I went back and looked, and there are 52 players that, have, that were in a similar position to where Rowland was here in terms of his uh, year and his percentage. Uh, all but one of those players, Rube Waddell, were voted in by the writers, and Waddell, of course, wound up making it in eventually. Schilling is a lock for the Hall of Fame. I think Andrew Jones is a bit less clear. I, I think it's still probably a coin flip whether or not he does get in, but I was encouraged by the jump. We talked about this on the podcast last week. To me, he should be a shoo-in for the Hall of Fame. All right, Hembo. Thanks for doing this. Later, man. Get out of here, Hembo. Sick of Hembo. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus... It treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NexGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When and if the 2022 season is played, it'll be the 18th year that Rich Hill pitches in the big leagues, which seems a little insane, Rich. <laughs> like yeah. 18 different seasons. I was thinking about this. 
Like you're, you're becoming like the Tom Brady of baseball in terms of longevity. <laughs> What's your thought process about how long you want to do this? Yeah. I, you know, Buster, thanks for having me on. I uh, would like to continue to keep playing as long as I can. I understand that there are other, you know, circumstances that are on the uh, back burner, so to speak, and they're moving towards the front very quickly. So um, some things that, you know, that come into to play on, on the decision on moving forward on, on, on playing and continuing to play, uh, you know, one is health obviously, and, and being able to produce, uh, and be productive out there on the field. Um, I don't think anybody, there is, there is a lot to be said in this game to be able to go out on your own terms. I've seen it, uh, done very few times and, uh, it's, it's a pretty special thing to be able to do. So, you know, with that said, I'd like to continue to keep playing, um, but it's it's really a year to year thing at this point, and uh, and a World Series championship would be something that would be tremendous. And I kind of wondered when I saw you because you yeah, grew up just outside of Boston. Uh, when I saw you sign with the Red Sox, I thought, you know what, that would be an interesting bookend if that's how uh, he wanted to wrap up his career. What was your thought process signing with Boston? Yeah, I, you know, I, I just thought it was a great fit. A because it was. Uh, home. And that was a huge, huge reason for us coming back uh, to Boston is our son, you know, uh, he's in fourth grade now, uh, Bryce and and my wife, Caitlin, uh, you know, being home for 81 days, uh, you know, is, is a huge, huge uh, asset for us to just be together as a family. And, and the travel is obviously difficult as, as time goes on throughout this game, but at the same time being here and, and I know he's excited being 10 years old and, and, you know, my wife is excited at the same, same uh, sentiment for, for me being here uh, for this time during the season. But um, you know, the other issue that was on the table was, you know, picking a team that was, that was going to be a contender as well. And that was something that Boston certainly, certainly has. They have, you know, the, the ingredients or the makings uh, of a true contender in the East. And in my opinion, playing in every division in this game, then this is no disrespect to any of the other divisions, but you know, the AL East, in my opinion, is, is the toughest division in, in baseball. Um, and, you know, Boston certainly is, has a roster and and uh, lineup that can be extremely productive and put together a, a winning team for this 2022 season. I, I want to ask you uh, about your preparation in this time of uncertainty and how you're going to, uh, you know, how you've been handling that. Uh, I want to ask you about the news that we got the other day about the electronic strike zone uh, being implemented in AAA. Uh, but you, you mentioned your son. I'm curious. I've had a lot of players say this to me through the years that they like. Uh, having an opportunity to be in the major leagues when their, you know, their son or their daughter can remember. Uh, you yeah. know, he's old enough at that age where it's not like he's two, he's 10 years old, as you said. How big of a factor is that for you? Oh, it's great. Uh, yeah. Oh, geez. Get a little emotional thinking about it, actually. <laughs> but uh, it is pretty cool to be able to, you know, he's he, he's at the age where he'll be able to come out and, 
you know, things that he'll, he'll remember. It's uh, certainly going to be, be a special year, I think. And, and uh, for him to be able to uh, be at the age where he can go out and shag balls and, 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 you know, be out there for batting practice and understand that, you know, I feel comfortable with him going out there because I've seen his ability on the baseball field and his reaction time to, to balls when they're coming uh, towards him. So I, I see that that will be, you know, something hopefully, uh, can be um, negotiated uh, during this season that he can go out there and, and be part of some batting practices. And, um, you know, certainly for the the lifelong memories that he's going to have of that, because, you know, if, if anything, this game is, is taught myself is, is being in the moment and living in the moment and enjoying every moment that you can, because, you know, when it's over, it's over. So, um, you know, I want him to, to be a part of it as much as, as possible for this, for this year. And, and also, you know, for my wife to be able to enjoy the memories as well, coming to the games. And, you know, we, we grew up here in Boston, so, you know, it, it was our, it was our first major league team and, uh, you know, fortunate that it was the Red Sox and, and, uh, you know, good things to come for this year. Yeah. Your son, his last, uh, you know, if you wind up finishing with the Red Sox, his last memories will be in Fenway park, you know, with yeah. permission from, uh, you know, Dave Meller, he'll get to meet Drago. Dave Meller's uh, oh, yeah. shepherd uh, who's on the field. That'll Great be- dog. Love that. Oh gosh. I love that dog. He's, he's uh, so cordial and, and uh, just beautiful dog. Yeah, exactly. All right. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I told you when I reached out to you the first time, I don't want to dive too deeply into the weeds on the labor stuff. Generally yeah. speaking, how are you feeling about it and where, where are we uh, stand right now? I'm a little, I'm a little down on it, to be honest with you. Um, I think that, you know, the way the negotiations have gone, I know this is the second day being Tuesday of uh, this week that I think both parties are going to sit at the table and, and start and discuss. I had, you know, and I, I'm a little discouraged because of the movement and, and using spring training, um, let alone spring training as a backboard for free agency the last couple of years, which has been unfortunate because you push guys, you know, right up until spring training and guys say, well, Hey, I got to make a decision. I'm either going to go sign for a lot, you know, less than what I feel that I am worth. Um, and you know, not everybody gets what they feel they're worth, but they should get what they deserve. Um, and a lot, a lot of guys get a lot less than what they deserve because they, they use uh, spring training as, as a backboard to use that as a negotiating tool. And that's happened over the last couple of years. And that's what's happening right now in this, in this CBA discussion. Um, I'm not really, you know, uh, looking forward to pushing spring training back. Uh, I think that's what's ultimately going to happen unless something, you know, drastic, drastic happens in the next couple of weeks here uh, where we, where we finally come to a decision and, and both sides are, you know, have some kumbaya um, and it's, and we can move forward. But I think, you know, pushing spring training back um, you're putting guys at risk for injury during the season. Um, And you're also the other side of it too, is, is the development of guys that are coming up through the minor leagues. I don't think that this gets talked up, you know, enough about is that guys that are coming up through the minor leagues right now, they're, you know, the, the communication with the clubs is, especially if you're on the 40 man, you know, the, those guys are not going to be able to communicate with the clubs. They're not going to be able to keep tabs in on, you know, their progression and how things are going with their development in this off season. And I think that's going to be a major issue again, just coming off of 2020 where, you know, it was, it was a crazy season and a, and a crazy time for everybody. And it still is, but you know, with, with the development of those players, I feel like that this is going to impede, um, 
you know, some of that. And, and unfortunately, uh, the health of baseball overall is going to suffer if, if we can't really come to, um, you know, some decisions soon. And I, and I see it on different levels. You know, I see it with uh, the cutting of the draft, the cutting of minor league systems. And I've mentioned this before, but when you cut the draft and you cut the minor league, uh, some of the teams in the minor leagues. I understand the idea behind it. I, you know, you want to you want to make the talent pool uh, a little bit, uh, you know, smaller or narrow everything down a little bit. But at the same time, you know, the guys that uh, don't get the opportunity to play in the big leagues necessarily, but but let's say that they had the opportunity to get called up for a spring training game. Let's say they had the opportunity to be around a spring training at major league at major league camp the knowledge and, and the uh, resources that they're going to carry with them from that back to their hometown, wherever that might be in the United States, in Canada, the Dominican, uh, Venezuela, um, over overseas, any, anywhere is going to be invaluable because they're going to go back and they're going to, um, you know, tell the kids in the area, the right way to play the game, you know, certain things that they picked up, from major league camp from a player who possibly, you know, is going to the hall of fame or, you know, they learned something from somebody who had X amount of years in the big leagues or a manager or a coach or whoever it might be, but cutting that lifeline off from the, that's, that's where the, that, that health part that I'm talking about in the game that I feel is going to absolutely like, you know, suffer in 10, 20 years, it's going to take away from, from, you know, the development of players in certain pockets of the country and the world. That That's the way I look at it. And I, and I feel like, you know, um, just, just something about it. I, I understand the, the, I, the idea behind it with, with maybe finances. I don't really understand that, but the, to narrow the, the field down, um, but to take it away from other kids, because the other side of it too, that I think about is that there are guys that they don't develop until they're 28, 29 years old. You know, we've seen plenty of guys come up 27, 28, 29, and that hit their stride as opposed to not everybody's going to come up at 20 and 22. And that's, that's awesome. That's amazing. Or 19, but really the, the, the some of those guys that you're, you're missing are, are uh, not going to have the opportunity as they had before. And, you know, with the draft, you're not going to see as many late round guys that have that you know, again, it's the development of the player. It's, it's how much baseball is, has that player played up until that point. And when you're 19, 20, 21, 22, it's still not a lot of baseball because now you're just entering, you know, the 140 uh, game minor league season, let alone the 162 major league season. I mean, you talk to guys after a, after a major league spring training and a full season of minor league baseball, they're, they're like, wow, that is something I have never done in my entire life. And, you know, to season guys, to season guys over the years, that is where the minor league system benefits, you know, players that need it. I'll give you, I'll put some names to what you're talking about. Uh, for example, if you were to talk about the impact of coaches and sort of the seeding of the sport throughout uh, Buck Showalter, he was not a major league player, spent a lot of time. He was an excellent minor league player wind up uh, coming up through the Yankee system as a coach and a manager. And, and here we are, we see him where he is today. How about Mike Trout's father? Jeff mm-hmm. Trout played what four or five years in the minor leagues. I don't think he went above double a, but he goes back to Millville, New Jersey. He's got all that knowledge. He was a terrific mm-hmm. high school coach. Yeah. 
brought up his son around baseball. And, you know, Mike probably is going to end his career considered to be the greatest player of all time. And among yeah. players, what you're talking about, Kevin Kiermeyer, you know, yeah. gold glove center fielder. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't remember. He's like a 25th round pick yeah. Yeah. Uh, from, from Indiana. And Lorenzo Cain, who didn't play very much baseball growing up, right. uh, you know, winds up being a, a star center fielder in the big leagues when he finally got an opportunity to play. Uh, how about Jacob DeGrom? Right. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. I think a ninth round pick. And, you know, he's sort of brought along. He had Tommy John surgery as well, but it took him some time to really get his stride. So I, I agree with you. I, I felt that that's all been uh, very penny wise and pound foolish. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With, with this all going the way that it is, I wanted to ask you about how you're handling the preparation for this year. And it feels like that for veteran starting pitchers among all the Pantheon of players, it might actually be the easiest because you're such in a routine and you can, mm-hmm. if for lack of a better way to describe it, you can sort of just, you know, hold it down until you feel like you need to. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm at, the, at the point of my career as well, when we take in the different uh, aspects of the player, you, you think about um, throwing, uh, you know, in an off season for a guy that is OK, maybe he, he just had his first year in the major leagues. OK, his throwing program, uh, you know, at, at, at let's say 24 is going to be a little bit different than mine going into 42. and. Um, you know, with all those years that have compiled and, and really uh, trying to, you know, deal with different injuries, different outcomes in the off season and different things that you have to go through, but really refining that throwing program uh, to the point where, you know, um, exactly what you need to do for uh, the upcoming season has, has definitely a huge benefit for somebody like myself and somebody who's, who's, been fortunate enough to be playing uh, for the amount of time that I have. But also, I think the the training age is something else that comes into to mind when I think about you, you, you know, it, it, it's almost like velocity. I don't know if we'll ever get, to, does it continue to keep going up and creeping up? Is somebody going to be throwing 120 miles an hour or is that going to be, you know, is that, but with training age is very similar. It's just kind of, you know, you get to the point of your peak strength and, every year to get back to that peak strength because you've been working, you know, throughout the regular season, uh, during the, during, uh, baseball season, you're, you're continuing to work and, and maintain your strength. Obviously you're going to have a regression during the season, but you don't want it to be a sharp regression. So that's why you build up, you know, a heavy workload in the off season to be able to, uh, as they say, take the deposits out of the bank slowly as the season's going on. But, um, so to get back to that peak strength in the, in the off season, it doesn't take as long as it did when, you know, when you're building it at 25, 26, 27 years old, um, your body, you know, will, uh, adhere and, and bounce back quicker to your peak strength. So those, a couple of, those are the two big things for me is, is obviously being able to know yourself. Uh, period across the board, know yourself in your throwing program, but also know yourself what you need to do to get uh, in peak physical form. And then, you know, at the other side of it is the, the peak mental form that you need to uh, accumulate and acquire um, every single off season that it takes going into the major league season and making sure that, you know, that's, that's, you know, another part of a major part <laughs> of the game that continuously grows over the course of a, a career, but with that mental training, that also gives you the, um, 
you know, the, the wherewithal and the foresight to know wh- what you need to do to be prepared physically um, for the season. So they both, you know, really the, the mental side takes care of the physical side as well. So I'm old enough where I covered the uh, the 1995 season, which he had a labor agreement finally after a strike. Uh, there was a truncated spring training, three weeks long. Uh, the season wound up being reduced to 144 games. As we sit here today, if that's the type of situation we have where you have a three-week spring training, what would be your biggest concerns? Uh, innings for uh, starting pitchers. I think that would be the biggest. You know, it's really the pitchers, I think, that, and, and also for the hitters to be able to see um, you know, to tra- track the ball and have the ball come in and, and be able to get their timing down. Those are the two. Those are the two biggest things. Uh, innings, innings pitched by pitch, uh, starting pitchers and relievers. Um, no doubt, pitching across the board, but also the the ability for the hitters to be able to get their timing down because that takes, you know, as, again, like training age um, in the gym. The I believe the the tracking of the pitches. You know, you see, we've seen it before in the past where guys will miss. You know, spring training. They miss the first month of the season. Oh you know, player A is coming back um, May 1st or whatever. It takes him still about a month and a half to get into a stride or a swing, you know, to be able to time that those balls coming in from the pitcher. Um, I think the other side of it is I've, I've always been, you know, every, every, every year in spring training, it almost seems like, oh, we're not going to have enough time to get, you know, at least build up to go to, but it always, you know, it always works out. You know, you make that six start, you have your five, you know, five at 85 or, you know, 90 pitches or, or however, you know, usually where you where you end it to go to, um, you know, maybe a shortened outing before the season starts. So you can kind of slingshot yourself into the season, but it always works out with a regular spring training. Now with, with a shortened spring training and a three week schedule, I think we're going to run into some problems and, you know, unless there's something done possibly with what they did in 2020 with adding another player onto the roster. Um, you know, I think it's something that should be looked at, especially for the the health of, of the players. Um, but that would be my biggest concern. In getting ready to talk to you, you know, it's funny, I thought about this and I was like, because as you know, the refrain in a normal spring training is by week five, uh, you know, the position players sitting around going, really, let's Mm -hmm. go, we're ready to go. Uh, And they feel like that they have to wait for the pitchers to build up innings. Um, In this case, I completely agree with what you're saying. I think this might be a case where if we had a, a three week spring training this year, that the hitters will be behind the pitchers, a lot of the hitters, um, and not only because of the three weeks, but, and you know this better than I do, players now routinely, hitters show up to the spring training sites and they Mm -hmm. start working at the end of January and Mm -hmm. early February before spring training. And they're in the regiment and they're working with coaches. And the way that hitters work now where they have their personal coaches, uh, they're not going to be connected with the hitting coaches until literally the first day. And then it's going to be, Hey, we got to hit something. You got to hit the ground running three yeah. weeks later. It's going to be opening day. I, I think it could be more problematic for those guys. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Buster with there's, there's, there's being in shape and then there's being in baseball shape. And if you talk to anybody there, you know, in, in, in players and, and you've heard it before, it, it takes it takes a little time to get into that baseball shape. I mean, whether it's shagging fly balls, you know, just being outside for the first time as guys like myself will be uh, because you're up here in the in the northeast and, and you know, it's not conducive to outdoor, uh, you know, 
ground balls or pitching or, you know, fielding uh, fly balls or, you know, even taking batting practice. Um, but that, that's really the biggest thing is, is guys, you know, getting into baseball shape. And that takes, you know, you're, you're, everybody's excited the first couple of days. And then once that wears off, you know, you get into your routine and you're going to be able to obviously be mentally strong enough and, and uh, understand that no matter what the season throws at you, you will be ready. Uh, I think that's, that's, you know, the ultimate marker at the end of the day is how can I, I call it like the light switch mentality is when you go out there in between the lines, it's like, if somebody were to call me this afternoon and say, Hey, Rich, you have to pitch tonight at seven o'clock. Okay. Like you have to be able to turn it on. So that's something that, you know, to adopt that kind of mentality going into uh, this 2022 season, I think will be extremely valuable for everybody is that, you know, you put in the work this off season, you put in the time and, you know, yeah, things might be a little bit behind, but don't let that be an excuse. So I wanted to ask you about the, the electronic strike zone. And there are two things in particular. One, I mean, anybody watches you pitch, no, you got a great curveball. Uh, you'll change angles in the way that you pitch. And I, and I thought to myself, you know what? He's the type of pitcher who theoretically, you know, when that goes into the big leagues, and I think it's a matter of time, it's only a matter of time at this point, you know, just in the way that when you were a kid and you were playing wiffle ball and you had the lawn chair strike zone yeah, uh, and you nicked that, yeah, you know, guys with good breaking balls might actually benefit from this. But I think the part that a lot of fans don't really truly understand is it's not the pitchers are going to be most affected. It's going to dramatically change the position of catcher. It's yeah, almost like no. catchers, you know, going to be, it's going to become another offensive position. Exactly. Yeah. There's not going to be any value in being able to receive anymore. And I, I mean, personally, I am against it. I am a thousand percent against the the automated strike zone for a couple of reasons. I think it's just basically like blackjack for, you know, Vegas once this comes around, because now we can almost, you know, figure out whatever the, the, algorithm is that what the strike zone is and figuring out how many times, you know, you're still dealing with a human being that's throwing the ball, but I I don't know, for some reason, I feel like it's going to be leaked into uh, outcomes of the game that aren't in control by a human being. I mean, I I don't know for, for whatever reason I, and it's probably, I guess it could be like, Oh, you know, it's not, I just, I enjoy when, you know, oh, well, that call, that was a great call or, well, man, he missed that one or, but it's not, I, I just don't think it's getting it right all the time. You know, I still think that there is an art form to being able to call a game from behind the plate. And I think that the umpires take pride in that. Um, and I also think that with the catching situation where guys who are um, hired for their ability to receive is also something that is, genuinely like just it's it's something that amazes me in 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 that art form and being able to um you know steal strikes or or you know frame pitches um that's something that i think we're going to miss out of the game if if we end up going to an automated strike zone and i i just feel like for hitters uh it would be another uh make it just extreme We're, we're trying to promote offense in the game but does this promote offense in the game with an automated strike zone i mean if if pitchers end up being you know we we figure out a way to you know drop a curveball in there but it it nicks the strike zone and never really gets to the to the the back of the plate because you're going to be able to hit the front of the plate uh is is that going to be something that's going to be fair for for the hitters um 
I, you know, I, I'm just against it right now. And I, I don't feel that, uh, it's anything that's going to be beneficial for, for the game and, and, and for the umpires. I don't know how the umpires feel about it, but, you know, I, I think that with the, with the re the, the instant replay or the review, the plays that can be reviewed now, I think that is, that's been, you know, obviously, uh, something that has shown to be a huge asset for the game because they're getting the calls right. And I think the umpires appreciate that. Um, now, does that, I mean, does that mean that the automated strike zone is going to get the call right? I don't, I just don't know because every, how is it going to work with the, every player's different size, you know, and is right. it, is it going to be able to be adjusted to every single player that comes up? Um, Aaron judge, Jose Altuve, that range. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm against it right now and I really don't feel uh, very strongly about how do you feel about it? Well, when I originally came up, I thought absolutely. Cause I've watched tennis, like you've watched tennis and you yeah. think, that's great. Yeah. They get the calls right. But I will tell you that as time has gone on, I thought about all the, 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 you know, the hours and hours and hours I've spent with catchers through the years. And I think about like the Molina brothers, think mm. about all that time that family has put into the nuances of that position and yeah. to run a game and to to have a, a working relationship with a home plate umpire and to you know work with the pitcher and the idea of that all being obsolete, all those wonderful skills, you know, a Jeff Mass, yeah. I'm, I'm pulling names out, guys who are really good at catching uh, you know, Mike Zanino, uh yeah. the Rays now. And the idea that all those skills won't matter is kind of a bummer for me. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. And I think that that's something that's, you know, the lost art of, and you don't want it to become the lost art. I've just watched some of these videos and I've seen, you know, the way some of these calls are made in whether it was the Atlantic league or in, I think it was the fall league that they were trying it out. But, you know, I mean, when you see balls bouncing in the dirt and I, it's just tough to, to see a game that is, can it be better? Of course, there's, there's probably a, a bunch of different ways that we can improve baseball and make it more exciting and make it more, you know, but uh, to, to what, what, what's the percentage of that fan base that is going to be, you know, that you're going to change and pull away from your, your, your base for to sacrifice, you know, to make the game into home run derby. I mean, we, they have home run derby can come for batting practice or, go to the all-star game, but to watch the, you know, the nuances of the game and to understand, you know, why the positioning or, or watch, you know, where, what guys are doing in their pre-pitch routine out on the field, or uh, why is the batter stepping out at this count at this time? And then he steps out again, or what is he thinking about? What is the pitcher doing, you know, walking around the mound for an extra moment or why is he working so quick? Uh, there's just all these things that you can, you can look at in the game. And, and I mean, I, I, for me, that's, that's, what's fun about it. <laughs> yeah. I covered rich in 1997. I covered the Eric Gregg game. I was at that game uh, in the playoffs when his strike zone for Atlanta's left-handed hitters was like yeah. that big yeah. and his strike zone for the right-handers was different. And so that's, that's what I've always thought when it, when it brought up or initially oh, thought about the electronic strike zone is I, I hated the games where the umpire was, a was, a was a, a turning point variable, but let's face yeah. it, that doesn't no. happen very often. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, and, and I guess when you think about uh, certain pitchers would get, you know, a few pitches here and there just because of possibly, 
you know, what they've accomplished in the game or, or, you know, where, what they've been able to do, I guess that's, but I, you earn that too at the same time. And I, I don't know, maybe it's changed and, and that's not the way that it is anymore, but uh, to be able to consistently show the umpire that you're going to execute the pitch at that same you know, on the, on the outer half or the inner half or, um, you know, the top of the strike zone and, and consistently show that you can hit that spot. And yes, it is a strike. Um, you know, you should be able to kind of get a better working relationship, I guess, throughout the game, the game, you know, you, you earn that kind of working relationship. Okay. You proved it that you can continue to hit that strip spot. You know, everybody needs to kind of be at, at on notice, but the other side of it is for the hitters. I mean, I just don't think that they should be getting, you know, called strike three calls on balls that are bouncing in the dirt. Um, I, I don't know. It looks like kind of like an old, you know, watching a game from the twenties, you know, when you see the umpire just, (laughs) or or getaway day at the end of the season. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. When, 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 yeah, a game between two teams has no implications on the playoffs or anything like that. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested to hear what the umpires have to say because, uh, you know, from, from my perspective, I think the other side of all this that we we may be missing out is is what's going to happen on the gambling front and being able to put on an automated strike zone, I think, is something that could be extremely dangerous and going down, uh, you know, another side of this that nobody's really kind of entertained yet. <laughs> wow. I, I hadn't thought about that, but but you're right. All right, yeah. sir. Well, I appreciate it, Rich, and I hope to uh, see you at Fenway Park with Drago soon. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks, Buster. Thanks for having me on. Bleacher Tweets. All righty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for a fine Wednesday. And uh, I think we need to talk about our missed connection, Buster. Is is that okay with you? Uh, Sure. Go ahead. Go for it. So, uh, you know, Buster and I, we were not in our home residence the last uh, week or so. We were both in the great state of Montana. Which, uh, you know, that's that's interesting. And we kind of figured that we would both be in the state about the same time. And uh, we didn't really talk about it. You know, we come on here. We're very business. We get down to it. And the week before I went last show, I say, hey, Buster, I'm going to be in this particular town at this particular time. And I think you're going to be in the area. And you said, oh, you know what? I'm going to be in that town as well. And I said, whoa, that's really cool and exciting. And Montana's a great place. And. Maybe we should uh, we should link up, and I'm going to do a little role play here, Buster, uh, for you and for me. People are going to know who is you and who is me. So this is how the conversation went. Hey, uh, okay, that's cool, Buster. Maybe we could link up for uh, dinner. Nope. Okay, um, <laughs> that's cool. I guess um, uh, you know I thought we were friends, but no big deal. Maybe we could just get a, a beer or a sip of coffee. Nope. <laughs> okay, well, um, I guess I'll just, you know, dive into traffic here. Uh, you know, you're very busy, and and I guess our friendship is is over. So you and me, Buster, we didn't hang out in Montana. Wow. Um, and that's okay. You're a busy guy. You have people to see. I understand. But, uh, man, you, you brought the hammer down. Sarah, is there any of that incorrect, what I just described? Well, as the third-party observer of the situation who has absolutely <laughs> no ties to the matter, um, I would say that was pretty accurate. <laughs> Sorry, Buster, that, that was. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, what I find to be amazing is, I'm going to turn it back on you, Taylor, Okay, is that we only live an hour apart, like all the time. It's true. 
And so my perspective is, okay, vacation time, maybe that's not a great place, but you know what? We have all this time living here back in the East. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fair. And other people, and I think you would agree with me, that juggling that schedule to make that happen would involve other people. It's a lot easier to do it back East. I'm 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 aware. I, and it makes sense too. I mean, I I had things going on, you had things going on, so uh, you know, no hard feelings. Your your invitation to my housewarming party may be maybe in question. Todd Radom might have to make that drive from New York himself, but uh yeah, I think I think we'll 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 make it happen. We've talked about it uh, you know, hanging out in on the East yeah. Coast before. So we'll make it happen. Well, but, uh, and you know what? We got it looks like we're not going to have anything to do in February in terms yeah. of a daily podcast. A lot of time. So maybe uh, maybe we'll pick out a lunch spot, get Todd there. Sarah, yeah. you're welcome to fly out from Nebraska. Sarah's going to be here too soon. Don't worry. We can all have friendship time together. This will be great. OK, well, there you go. Yeah, we'll we'll have a nice party. Yeah. All right. Let's go to the tweets here. Uh, Tim Continenza at Tim Continenza writes in what used to be a day of celebration of Major League Baseball has turned into a very sad day. I am heartbroken for the game. I loved. What a shame. Loved, I think, is the operative word there. Past tense. Yeah. Uh, So I want to hear from you guys what you thought about happened, uh, what your perspective was in the Hall of Fame voting announced yesterday. Taylor. I mean, it's just it's preposterous that David Ortiz could be allowed in. But uh, everyone else has taken a hard line on PEDs with all the other players that, uh, you know, arguably saved the sport from a relevancy crisis that it is again creating for itself. So it's it's preposterous. And I mean, this is this is what it was all day yesterday. Everyone's just sad for the sport and the state that it's in. And this is just piling on on top of all the, the labor stuff. Yeah, Sarah, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think if you're going to set the precedent, then it has to apply to everybody. You can't make exceptions for someone like David Ortiz, but then not do the same for Barry Bonds. I just think that if it's going to be the same, it has to be the same across the board. I've laughed over the last seven years the logic at the logic pretzel that you see writers go into to say, well... I, you know, I'm voting for this guy, but I'm not voting for Sammy Sosa because of this (laughs) or I'm voting for this. It's like, can you please stop? Here's the other thing, too, that drives me crazy. I use, you know, the term, you know, the the fact that uh, the writers uh, have been deputized, the retroactive morality police guys that the the baseball writers went to the Hall of Fame uh, years ago and asked for guidance when it comes to came to the steroid era candidates. And the Hall of Fame's response was, nah, we're not going to give you any guidance. You guys take care of it. It was like the Hall of Fame stacked up the writers in front of the hall like like bags of sand. Like, <laughs> here, you guys take the brunt of the criticism. We're not going to get involved. I can't believe that you have all these writers who've allowed that to happen. That is a great point. And I'm I, I feel like that that's something that we did not see in dis- the discussion yesterday. And I don't know why these writers don't come out and say it if that's what they're you know, that's what's happening, because I wouldn't want to. Well, be you know what either. you can do if you don't like it and they shouldn't like it. You know, the making news don't participate. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I stopped seven years ago. Jeff Passon stopped. I know some other writers have stopped because it's not a good place for a journalist to be to be making the news. Mm hmm. All right, let's go to Justin Simmons at Justin Lance Sim one. Hey, Buster, I am seeing a lot of writers and media outlets sharing stats that make a strong case for Andrew Jones being a Hall of Famer. Do you think his candidacy is gaining momentum? Absolutely. And I think eventually he gets in. Uh, I think once you get the uh, the analytic community behind you and we saw this with Tim Raines's candidacy, that that is a major factor. 
P.K. Steinberg writes in, do you think receiving a minimum of 75% of the vote to be elected into the Hall of Fame is too low? That's interesting because I've heard people say it's too high. Um, I I think 75% is about right. I don't think the problem is the 75%. I think the problem is the character clause. And, And by the way, while we're having this conversation about the character clause, I don't understand why the Hall of Fame, if the baseball writers should go to the Hall of Fame and say, look, you need to rewrite the character clause because we're not going to use the name, the words put together by a segregationist. Can I sell Mountain Landis? We're just not going to use those. Come up with it. whatever character clause you guys want to put in there, whatever standard of behavior you want to put in there. You define that. If I'm the writers, I'm tossing it back to Hall of Fame saying, you guys be the, the, the bags of sand for yourself. We're not going to play that role anymore. <laughs> Katie Casey at Tweeter Bleats writes in Buster and Taylor. If he's not too busy on vacation, I think that applies to both of us. Katie, Katie writes in when Otani becomes a free agent. Do you think his signing will set the record for total dollars, dollars per year, total years or all three? All right. For the record, I worked the whole time. <laughs> I was at Montana getting up at four in the morning to write. That's your problem. I, I'm seeing your <laughs> tweets out there. Woohoo. Look, I'm at the top of the mountain. Yeah, I'm over here. I'm checking out craft beers or whatever it was. You were having a vacation. I was working. All right. Okay. Those vacation days that you're stacking up, Buster, you're not going to get those back when when the time comes to leave ESPN. (laughs) Just letting you know. Uh, So I I think he's going to set the record for total dollars in a season. He will not get the record for most uh, dollars over the course of the contract because he's older. He's not 26, 27 like a Carlos Correa, like a Fernando Tatis Jr., like a Trout when he signed his deal. Um, But he's going to get well paid. Last one for the show, Paul Swanick at Welsh Brewer 70. Paul writes, in light of the interview with Genevieve Beacom last week, I was wondering why Major League Baseball teams don't utilize their stadio whilst teams are on the road by having a women's team playing. We've seen the rise in popularity of women's soccer and the success of women's basketball during the war years. Uh, I don't know what that means, but just generally, I would agree with that statement. Is it something that the owners have thought about or is it something they are not bothered about? No, I, I mean, stadia. And I love the, you know, the, the use of the plural uh, Latin. Um, the stadia do get used. I mean, you see for concerts all the time and for other events, um, sometimes they'll have baseball tournaments. For example, I know at Fenway Park uh, when the Red Sox are out of town, I, I would say, generally speaking, the idea of having a soccer game on a baseball field in the middle of the season is probably a bad idea because the field would get completely chewed up. Um, but baseball owners do actually try to use their their uh, their venues for other other events as long as they don't damage the field. Apologies to Paul. I misread his question there. The success of women's baseball during the war years, probably talking about World War II. Um, yep. and I was just projecting the success of women's basketball, which is extremely popular right now. And, and maybe that was playing into uh, his thought process there. So thanks for writing in, everyone. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter. And please follow, rate, and review this podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's it for today. My thanks to uh, Rich Hill, to Hembo, to Sarah Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for la- listening. And remember... Hate and inequality based on skin color is something that we need to fight against every single day. Thanks for listening to the Baseball Tonight podcast. If you're playing fantasy baseball, check out the Fantasy Focus podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. The Baseball Tonight podcast. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.